0: Welcome back to On The Tape. I'm Guy Adami. I'm with Dan Nathan. Danny Moses is not with us this week. However, he was so exercised about something that he's got a rip off the tape coming up. You don't want to miss. We're also going to be joined by legendary hedge fund investor Jim Chanos, who was our first guest on the tape. And you're about to hear from our very first presenting sponsor, CME Group, which we'll talk about. At the end of the show, stick around. We've got a wonderful show for you today. Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Back by popular demand, Jim Chanos, the founder and managing partner of Kinecos Associates LP, the world's largest exclusive short-selling investment firm. He began his career as a financial analyst with Payne Weber, Guilford Securities, and Deutsche Bank. Jim is currently a lecturer in finance at the Yale School of Management, teaching a class on the history of financial fraud. He also serves as a trustee at the New York Historical Society and the National World War II Museum. Jim, it's a pleasure to have you back with us again today. Jim Chanos,
1: you were our first guest on On the Tape podcast back in late January. Thank you for rejoining us today.
0: My pleasure, guys. Good to be back. It is great to have you back. You're a badass, JC, as you know. I say it all the time. It's wonderful to have you back. And listen, let's get right into it. Unless you were scuba diving in the Caymans or fishing in Key West and you missed the big news this week, the news was Stan Drunkenmiller, the op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, the subsequent appearance on Squawk Box. I mean, I know you know, but talked about the Fed overstaying their welcome high stock market valuations the US dollar not being a reserve currency in the next 15 years, potentially. He rattled off a bunch of stuff and it made news and it had reverberations around the market. What are your thoughts around Stan's comments? Stan's comments, I think, kind of speak for themselves. The interesting paradox that I see out
2: there regarding what he's saying is that the Fed has been telling us now since basically COVID, but actually going back really to Christmas 2018, that they want inflation. They've been very clear about that, that one of their goals is to get inflation higher than the 2% target. And now that it appears we're embarked on that road, people seem shocked. And this is actually was their policy goal. And now that we're in a recovery post-pandemic, I don't think they're going to try to deviate from that. I think you take Powell at his word that he's gonna keep his foot on the accelerator until inflation expectations are a lot higher than they are today. So we've all been warned. Whether they're making a policy mistake or not, we'll know, obviously, in hindsight. But clearly, they're embarked upon an aggressive stance on top of a recovery. So uh, we're in relatively new, uncharted territory that we haven't seen in decades.
1: So the op-ed obviously hits on a handful of things. Obviously, equity market valuations, the dollar that he thinks is going lower, potentially losing the reserve currency status within 15 years, the ability to finance all the debt that global central banks have kind of stacked on in response to this pandemic. What is the one that sticks out for you, the one thing that you're most focused on when you think about his warnings about the Fed overstaying their welcome?
2: I would not dare to jump into the Forex or macro arena stand. So I'll 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 defer on that, but we do know something about equity market valuations having been around for almost 40 years. And we are as stretched as we've ever been. I mean, more so than the dot-com era, which was everyone kind of forgets was pretty bifurcated. You had the TMT space that was really, really crazy. And then everything else was relatively a bit expensive to inexpensive. Today it's across the board. You have consumer product companies Package good companies trading at 30 times earnings. You have cyclicals trading at 25 to 30 times earnings. And so it is really across the board as it relates to valuations, but it's even worse than that. More so than the dot-com era, we see an emphasis on revenues at all costs, particularly in the technology space. So we see lots of evidence of companies pursuing unprofitable revenues because their equities are being valued on a price to revenue multiple or some sort of revenue metric, revenue growth, what have you, coupled with the use of aggressive pro forma earnings metrics by adding back share-based comp and other things, you have kind of a witch's brew of stocks that are on stilts being valued on unprofitable revenues and then at increasing multiples on those revenues. So we've never seen so many mundane money losing businesses trading at. 10, 15, 20 times revenues. That's new and that's unusual. And not only that, they're much, much bigger market caps than they were in the dot-com era. With the exception of a handful of big guys like Cisco and Yahoo and a few others, most of the really crazy stocks in the dot-com era had valuations of a couple billion dollars. And today I can find all kinds of just silly businesses trading at eight, 10, 12, $15 billion, not a problem.
1: We've been talking about this. I know you watch our fine program, Fast Money, most nights here. And, you know, for me, this is really stuck in my craw, the size of some of these recent IPOs and the magnitude in which they are off from their highs. And I could give you a list of names. I mean, it starts with the biggest ones, Airbnb, DoorDash, Snowflake, C3AI, Palantir. I mean, the list goes Lemonade. You had a really interesting comment on Twitter on that one. Affirm. I mean, these were some of the hottest names in the private markets over the last few years. Years, right, and people were justifying paying 30, 40, 50 times sales. You said 15, 20. I can find some that with these massive market caps. So my question to you, and this always really triggers Guy Adami here. It's really different this time. When you think about versus, I remember what it was like in the late 90s, early 2000s, but it was really, the downdraft was really led by those massive names. What were the five horsemen or whatever, right? It was Cisco, it was Nortel, it was Lucent and stuff like that. Now we have some massive, very unprofitable names trading at multiples that they can never grow into. The bull case for a lot of these companies, you take a look at Lemonade, for
2: example, the basic bull case at this point for a company like Lemonade is, it's down from 180, you know? So it's trading at 60 and therefore it's worth an investment. The fact of the matter is, is that this stock, you know, probably shouldn't be trading at 10. And so it's kind of crazy just how high these things got in January, February, March, relative to their business prospects. And some of them, they're not even businesses. They're just, as I call them, schemes. And so they'll never be profitable. And so I think that when the bull case resides on how much it's down from, I think you got to kind of step back and say, well, okay, but was that even relevant based on where these things traded and why they traded there with limited floats and whatever? I think that it's crazy. And as I said, a number of these companies that are down 50% still have $10 billion, $15 billion valuations.
0: And are worth one-tenth of that maybe if they're lucky it's crazy and no, i agree lemonade if memory serves and i'm doing this from memory i think it traded 190 at one point and it's to your point i think it's 60 dollars now and it's still probably a four billion dollar market cap company and maybe it is a ten dollar stock who knows but you know we you can do a whole show a laundry list of companies just like this i want to quickly get back it's not the same this time it's actually worse than i think it's ever been i think that's what you're sort of alluding to dan but I put it all... Listen, again, I'm not looking to rant on the Fed, but that Stan Drunken thing, it really got me fired up because he reinforced so much of my belief systems. And my question to you, Jim, will they even admit if they get it wrong the Fed? I mean, there's no ramifications for them being wrong. I mean, right? There's no... I mean, what really happens? Oh, we got it wrong too bad. I mean, I think there's going to be so much in the wake of this in terms of destruction that lasts for not years, decades, but there are no ramifications to those guys and gals. they just sort of shoulder shrug. They go on to work at Bain & Company or something, or McKinsey, write a book, do the speaking tour, and the world's a great place for them. Yeah, well,
2: I mean, again, it's asymmetric as we know, Guy, because the Fed will tell you with a completely straight face that they cannot identify bubbles in advance as they create them. And then, of course, have to step in to clean up the wreckage every time one of the bubbles burst. So it's kind of incredible how they treat the financial markets through which they affect policy by basically saying, we really can't predict the future. And yet and yet they are embarked on predicting the future all the time in other aspects of their policy. And so the sort of hypocrisy or the intellectual disconnect there is somewhat at best amusing, at worst, terribly frightening. And again, we are basically have a third
0: mandate thank you Jim Chanos I say it all the time Dan makes fun of me I write about it I've said it on the show people scream at me on Twitter in my opinion their dual mandate is simply this make sure the Nasdaq and the S&P 500 stay at all-time highs because you know what people see that Jim whether you own a stock or don't own a stock if the market goes up every day People say, wow, the economy must be doing great. If the economy is doing great, maybe I can spend the money that I don't have. And if I spend the money, the 73% of this economy that's driven by consumer spending will continue to go. When do people stop spending money? I'll tell you. When the market goes down 19.9% in a straight line from October 2018 to December of 2018, consumer spending stopped like, get ready, that. And that's when the Fed reversed course. They're a slave to the markets.
2: They're slave to the markets because they affect policy through the markets. And so that's the transmission mechanism. And so, of course, now that means they're highly attuned to asset prices and deflation in asset prices, as you say, seems to transmit. So we've kind of turned everything upside down where where it was the economy that drove stock prices. Now, arguably, as you suggest, it could be asset prices that drive the economy.
1: So there's two things here, right? And we've seen this over since the global financial crisis in 2013. The Fed floated that trial balloon about tapering asset purchases, right? And we saw rates rallied and the stock market sold off. And then finally, when they started doing it in some point in 2015, we saw this dollar start to rally. There was some equity market palpitations globally. If you think about it, there were some issues as it relates to global growth, specifically in China back then. I know that's a Story that you were all over, but then we just got to it. They started slowly normalizing twenty-five rate increase here, you know that sort of thing, and the markets just kept on going higher. The stock market wasn't particularly bothered until that point in two thousand and eighteen, and I think the issue there, very specifically, was the worry about a growth slowdown. And so here we are. And I guess my question, and this is really coming from the Druck and Miller op-ed here. You know, he 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 had this quote: the Congressional Budget Office projects that in twenty years, almost thirty percent. Of all the yearly fiscal revenues will have to be used to solely pay back interest on government debt, up from a current level of 8%. Taxes won't cut it. Okay. So my question to you is how can interest rates ever go up in a meaningfully manner when you know that we're staring down that sort of debt coverage going forward? They just can't. And Guy and I talk about this all the time. Take a ruler, upper left, bottom right for the 10 year US Treasury yield over the last 30 years. It's basically gone from 8%, 9%, or or maybe a little higher to essentially zero last summer so where are rates really going
2: well i think it depends on a a lot of things i mean it depends on inflation it depends on nominal gdp growth you know you could easily have rates go up and not derail things if growth is fine the question will be to me is a matter of policy not just monetary policy but fiscal policy if we decide to embrace labor over capital that's going to be the problem for the markets because that's the scenario where you could see nominal GDP growth that's just fine. It just doesn't accrue to capital. And we had that basically from 1932 to 1979. Everybody forgets that nominal GDP and real GDP growth was just fine. Asset prices were terrible. And so people who earned wages did fine, basically consumers did fine, but the owners of capital and businesses and bonds generally did pretty poorly during that period. So that was a conscious decision by policymakers to emphasize labor over capital. Since 1979, I've told people this repeatedly, since the election of Thatcher in the UK and Reagan in in the US, we've had a, a global policy that has emphasized capital over labor. And thus you wanted to hold paper assets and ownership of businesses over being part of labor and so real wages have stagnated we've gotten record inequality we've gotten political unease all of that it's conscious decision and so if we see a move toward true populism not the faux populism we had in the previous four years of where you're going to try to get wage rates up and try to mandate higher minimum wages higher unemployment benefits higher safety net spending that could easily come on the back of corporate profitability And so there's lots of different ways this can play out, Dan, in which case rates could rise and the economy could do just fine, but asset prices might not. And that'll break that whole Fed cycle. So central banks did not rule the roost from 1932 to 1979. And since 1979, with the advent of Paul Volcker, they did. And so the question is, is it going to be the voters or is it going to be the Fed? And I think that's the bigger macro question than any other. If you do get movement toward increasing wages and broadening out uh, income distribution, that's probably not going to be great for equity prices on the margin.
0: No, I think, Jim, you bring up a great point. By the way, I know you probably you probably would agree with me. And if you don't, I know you rarely do agree with me. But you mentioned Paul Volcker, but I put him in his own <laughs> special category because he's the only Fed chair that got it in the last 35, 40 years, in my opinion. The rest of these people and I'll use the word, they're just puppets to the market. Anyway, I digress a bit, but you mentioned wage growth, and it's interesting that you say that because I want to sort of get your thoughts on the back half of the year for the markets. But earlier this week, we saw a couple things. We saw Chipotle Mexican Grill. I know it's anecdotal, but it's important. They said they're going to raise their minimum wage to $15 an hour. And oh, by the way, again this week, we saw that Amazon is raising their minimum wage as well. I mentioned those things because, you know, these policy wonks and politicians can debate all they want the market's going to do the job for them because you have all these job openings and a way to fill these openings to pay people more that's the final piece of the puzzle wage inflation what does that mean for the markets back half of the year i would even go a little bit further i
2: think the real litmus test will be the gig economy companies of which you know we're short because the gig economy companies and this whole movement toward classifying employees as independent contractors has been a huge, huge issue and has been deflationary for wages. Not only do you pay people in many cases below the minimum wage, but you foist all expenses of running the business onto your employees without paying them benefits or paying into state unemployment insurance funds. Uber and Lyft drivers were getting federal unemployment insurance last year and this year, despite the fact that Uber and Lyft don't pay into the pools. And so I think that in an attempt to go after the gig economy companies will be a very interesting litmus test on where the public policy is, where people's thought process is, and where policymakers' view is on really helping labor. I think labor rates are going up, I agree with you. I think they're gonna go up, particularly when the unemployment benefits wear off in September. And I posted something yesterday that we could be at a turning point where if your business model is dependent upon maintaining large pools of very low wage, workers with almost infinite supply, you could have a problem. And that's a lot of businesses in the US that really do depend on paying workers minimum wage or below. And so right now those businesses are getting the revenue increases, but they're soon to probably see cost increases as well. And that will be an issue for profitability. They'll do fine, they'll stay open, but they may just not be as profitable as they were in the past.
1: And to put a bow on that, I mean, when you think about it, so we were just talking about some very unprofitable new issued companies that are not faring particularly well in this market. So the idea is in the back half of this year, on the other side of the pandemic, you have a lot of very profitable companies who are going to see their margins squeezed by input costs going up and by labor costs going up. And and that could be, to use both of your term, you guys both love this term, a witch's brew for equity returns, especially when you see the S&P 500 still up Close to 10% on the year, despite the NASDAQ's massive underperformance. Jim, let me segue here because you and I went back and forth earlier in the week. You had this tweet. And if you don't follow Jim people, you gotta follow him at Wall Street Cynic on the Twitter here. But you were talking about SpaceX. Elon Musk, he tweeted out about the Doge One mission to the moon next year. It's gonna be paid for in Doge, first crypto in space, first meme in space. And and the thing that's <laughs> fascinating about Tesla, it's like Tesla and crypto, it's all these memes being mashed together with some kind of maniacal sort of guy pulling the strings here a little bit. And your point was a really good one here. You said, so I'm going to talk about promoting this Doge One launch next year, the sketchy Canadian latex glove company, tech company, in quotes. How is this not a classic pump and dump? And then you came back because you were just still raging or you're triggered, as (laughs) Guy would like to say. Then you threaded it, Jim. You said, why am I still talking about this silly story? Because SpaceX is a U.S. defense contractor, and we have no idea who's benefiting from higher Doge prices besides Musk. There are highly concentrated, anonymous positions in Doge. This may be a national security issue. Now, listen, I know some people were saying, ah, he's just kind of picking on Musk or this and that. You think this is a pretty serious sort of situation here.
2: I don't know, but I'm puzzled by the fact that the CEO of what's now a major defense prime SpaceX is a major partner of the Defense Department. And so you have the CEO of a U.S. defense prime that's going on and on and promoting these anonymous cryptocurrencies, many of which are mined in China and Russia. Almost all are held in anonymous accounts. On top of that, we have him in partnership with the Chinese government in Tesla in his Shanghai plant. And no one bats an eye about this. If the Boeing CEO was doing this 10 years ago, or the Northrop Grumman CEO was doing this 20 years ago, there'd be outrage but because of the Silicon Valley deification of CEOs who are disruptors, these guys all get passes. And I just don't think as a taxpayer, they should be getting passes. I'm concerned that SpaceX is doing a Dogecoin launch as a taxpayer funded entity, you know, with a Canadian company whose claim to fame seems to be they made some latex gloves in the pandemic and whose roster of advisors on their website includes a homeless guy who lives in his truck who calls himself Psychic X. I mean, this is, you can't make this up. This is performance art. Psychic X because Psychic Y was already taken. I, I mean, it's it, insanity. It, it, it's crazy. And again, if just step back, if Boeing or Northrop Grumman announced some deal with some small, small Canadian company that no one had ever heard of, with a roster of execs that seems like an SNL skit, you know, people would say, where's the board? What where, What the heck? What's going on here? But
0: with Musk, everybody just says, oh, well, that's, you know, that's just Elon. That's all part of it, though. I mean, the companies you mentioned couldn't be more buttoned up. And listen, I'm with you, by the way. I'm not pushing back. All these companies you mentioned prior are very buttoned up, suit and tie. And if they were to do something like that, just looks alone, they'd get stares. But Elon Musk has set himself up to be that maverick, which allows him the latitude to do a lot of things that he did. And the other thing that I found fascinating this past week was the seemingly reversal. And I don't want to go too far in this, but, you know, the announcement that they're no longer, Tesla's no longer accepting Bitcoin as payment. I think that came out on Wednesday night of this week. Regardless, you were, I'm sure you saw it. I know you saw it. Thoughts on that?
2: so when they came out in january right around when we did the first podcast and started promoting bitcoin as an alternative for payment for teslas and all of the crypto bulls started beating their chests, saying see tesla's uh, and musk are affirming bitcoin this is a real currency it's not just an a speculative asset and now of course that they've backed away from that you know there's some other motive involved and it's not important And you shouldn't listen to them one of the things i just thought was hysterical however was that Musk, of course, seemed shocked that Bitcoin used lots of energy, particularly energy generated by coal, as his excuse to de-emphasize it. And I pointed out and shared a document on Twitter of the fact that, first of all, his most important market, China, 65% of all electricity in China is generated by coal. And more interestingly, his Shanghai contract with the government stipulates that the factory runs on coal. So, (laughs) I mean, come on, you can't claim that you don't know that coal is a dirty fuel and then do business with China and run your Shanghai factory uh, theoretically on coal and claim that this is a shock to you when it comes to Bitcoin. So it just gets back to the veracity and what certain people can get away with and certain people can't.
1: Well, Jim, I'm grabbing my popcorn because we have two memes colliding here. The Bitcoin people now are pissed at him because they don't believe that Bitcoin, you you know, they think there's a lot of false narratives around the dirty energy to produce the Bitcoin. And now he does a about face about it. And so this thing's not going to end well. Just so you know, there was a headline. This is Thursday. I see Bitcoin and I see Ethereum both down 13%. I see Coinbase down 8% right now. There was a Bloomberg story that Binance is facing uh, investigations from the SEC about tax treatment and stuff like that. It just seems like... It was all too good to be true this year. You know, we had Bitcoin up, you know, more than 100% at one point, Ethereum up 250% or something like that. All the narratives just seemed really comfortable for a lot of people. Well, how is my how is my Dogecoin doing? Is that, <laughs> not good? Uh, that thing has been cut in half from its Saturday highs from live <laughs> on Saturday night. So, you know, it, any it takes on we haven't seen, you know, the last time we saw a sell off, a meaningful sell off in crypto. And listen, there's been plenty in Bitcoin, 25% peak to trough decline but they made higher highs over the last year. But the last time the stock market sold off meaningfully in March of last year, Bitcoin went down 60%. And that 2018 sell-off we talked about in Q4 2018 sold off 50% or more or something like that. So do you suspect, and I just want, you know, do you suspect that Bitcoin's a bit more correlated to other risk assets um, than we think? We just haven't seen an equity market correction to confirm it in a year or so.
2: For the people that think it's an asset, I'm told it's a diversifying asset class. Yeah. The evidence, the evidence on that seems to be uh, just the opposite, as you indicated. And for the currency, the people who think it's going to be an alternative currency, just shut up. It's not. It, <laughs> it, 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 it just doesn't pass any of the tests you need for it to replace fiat anytime soon, on a reasonable basis, ease of use, stability, what have you. And let me just add one more point on that that's really important because I teach this in my History of Fraud class. One of the greatest financial fraudsters of all time was John Law. I know Guy knows him pretty well. (laughs) He bankrupted France in 1720 in the Mississippi scheme. But he's also known as one of the greatest economic thinkers of all time. And He wrote a pamphlet back in 1703 on money and trade considered. That is basically is the first kind of clear understanding of what fiat currency was and what it wasn't because he was pitching it to the the various crowned heads of Europe. And he made a very, very important point literally back in 1703 about fiat currency. He knew the, the downsides of fiat, which is printing, inflation, the ability of the state to control it. But he also pointed out in times of fear and stress that fiat currency would be advantaged because people would want a state guarantee and the state adjudication of fraud. And that's a really important point when you talk to people about crypto as a currency. If you lose your account, it's hacked somehow, or you lose your password, whatever, you're out of luck. There's no deposit insurance in the world of crypto. And also when used as a medium of exchange, crypto benefits the merchants, not the consumers. Because once that money goes to the merchant, you're not getting it back if there's a problem with the product or you've been defrauded. And so, again, this is very much the opposite of our current payment system, where the credit card companies and the banking system will make you whole. And that's, to me, the major reason why we won't see crypto being used widely as as a medium of exchange or a currency. Now, as an asset class, fine, if you want to speculate in it because you believe it, some guy's going to pay more than the next guy. that's as old as as markets, but I have a really strong belief that these will not be seen as decentralized currencies anytime soon.
0: Yeah, greater fool's theory notwithstanding how do I get in your class in the fall? I mean, can I enroll just enroll in the Yale and get in there, or do I have to actually pass some like SATs or something Jim I, I, I mean I, I need to be in that classroom in the fall, <laughs> or is that not happening? It's probably not happening. I
2: think you'd be a disruptive force guy. I'm sorry. <laughs>
1: There's no question. You think? I'd be a disruptive force. All right. So here's the thing, Jim. You introduced me to the Biden campaign back in 2019, back when it was really not polling particularly well. It was really hard to kind of get a sense of who his constituency was. It was very attached to his tenure with Obama. And it was, I'm not Trump. You know what I mean? Like, And and I'm not the far left, right? You stuck with him the whole way. You and I chatted throughout the entire campaign. You were a big supporter here. We're four months into the administration. Things seem to be going pretty decently here. It has a pretty different field in the prior four years, if you will. (laughs) Give give us a little bit of a report card from where you're sitting. And then I have a couple questions because there's plenty of people in the corporate sector or on Wall Street investments, right? Or if you're in a pharmaceutical executive, there's a couple of things that have come up of late as it relates to taxes or IP waivers or carried interest. and, And I just want to get your sense on some of those hot topics, because those are sorts of things that he could lose some support as we head into the midterms in 2022.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the big differences, of course, is that i open my eyes in the morning whenever that is, I'm checking to see what Guy Adami and Dan Nathan (laughs) are saying, not the president. Yeah. Wondering what happened overnight. So I think there's just a general comfort level in the whole level of the country that whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, I think some of the anxieties have been reduced. Look, the Biden administration, Joe Biden told you who he was in the primary and in the general election, right? His platform was very clear. I'm going to raise taxes on the very wealthy and people who make over $400,000. I'm gonna raise the corporate tax rate. I'm gonna use it to pay for a variety of things. I don't think at the time, obviously the pandemic was front and center, but certainly infrastructure and other programs were. And he's trying to deliver on what he said he was going to do. So I think that that's not a surprise, the fact that some people are now saying, well, wait a minute, my taxes are gonna go up if I'm a corporation or if I'm making more than $400,000. Yeah, that, that was the intent. Whether it's going to happen or not, I don't know, because obviously you're going to need uh, to hold every Democratic senator in check and maybe you know, get one or two Republican uh, senators if you have defections. And that's no easy task. So the question will be, can Joe Biden get a compromise for a broader package that will include some tax hikes? Then that remains to be seen. We'll have to see you know, what the horse trading looks like. You know, because earmarks are back, what certain senators and congressmen will get in their districts. Will the corporate tax rate go up to 25%, not 28%? Will there be a phase in on the capital gains? It remains to be seen. I will say this about the Biden administration. They're serious about governing. So I think that that's kind of an important difference. They also have certain policy goals that should not surprise anybody. Getting back to our first discussion, President Biden has a bust of Cesar Chavez in the Oval Office. For those of you old enough to know who Cesar Chavez is, that should tell you something. He was a labor organizer in the 70s in California for migrant workers. And so there are definite policy differences in the Biden administration versus previous administrations, including the Obama administration, that are I think are meaningful, and you uh, ignore them at your own peril. But we do have a divided country, we have a divided Senate, and I think that, that that will probably tamp down any really aggressive moves, both on the spending side and the tax side. But Joe is going to, Biden is going try to try to get a compromise. That's who he is. And he's told you that's who he is. And, and so none of this should be a surprise to any of us. That's who we elected. That's if you voted for him or, or you know, understand that he is our uh, elected leader, there's no shock as to what his platform was. It was consistent throughout the campaign. One other point. I think you will probably see more regulation as it relates to business. Whatever tax rates do, that will be a change that can be done via the executive branch. And I made a point when Peloton sort of thumbed their nose on, on the recall of their treadmill if you remember, and that in the Trump administration would have just been you know, shrugged off. And then a couple of weeks later, Peloton said, oh, yeah, by the way, no, we're going to, re- you know, we're going to recall these things. Sorry. I suspect you have a bunch of new sheriffs at the head of regulatory agencies that are going to be a lot tougher on, on business than we've seen in the last four years. So that that I think will be a change.
1: All right, Jim. So we can't leave here. We've talked about a lot of pockets of exuberance, if you will, in financial markets here. And one, I think that is is quite simply, we've talked about the convergence of memes and that sort of thing. This ARK Invest, this Kathy Wood Fund, I mean, she seems to get a whole heck of a lot of attention. She has some very big ideas. She has long-term time horizons, but she has a vehicle in which that she has to literally mark to market uh, relative to her redemptions, that sort of thing. So she gets a lot of attention. You wake up some morning and there'll be a CNBC headline. Kathy Wood sells a third of this position or a third of that position. And she was just on TV a week earlier saying that she's got a $10,000, I'm just making that up, price target for Tesla or something like that. So what do you think of just the stature that she's gained in this market cycle? She obviously has a lot of followers. The meme stocks are just made up in her portfolios, that sort of thing. Do you think there's just too much emphasis placed on what's going on in that one ETF?
2: Well, I mean, every market cycle has performers like this. And as a fundamental short seller, I can understand redemptions better than anybody. And so I understand how that works. And back in the dot-com, we had a handful of people, one of whom ended up in prison, that were just followed, their every word was followed because they were outperforming the market as they bought their own portfolio every day with inflows. And then the flip side was when, when the market turned and they had to sell their portfolio every day, the outperformance they had on the upside disappeared. And it turned out they were just a high beta fund that was no different than buying the NASDAQ times two or times three. And so we won't know about any of the bull market geniuses until the next bear market. And that's just the way markets work, right? There's always going to be people that kind of go out of the end of the whip in terms of aggressiveness with their portfolio and the market's up, they're gonna be up 2X or 3X. And that's nothing new, that's as old as markets. And so to attribute it to a certain personality, whatever, is always just a handful of these people. There was in 07, there was in, in 2000, there was in 1989, You know, and I could go back in 1968, there was a handful of the, the, the go-go managers that all blew up. And buying thin float NASDAQ stocks with stories with infinite amounts of money that come in every day I guarantee you your performance is going to look great it's just you know how it looks like on the backside of the uh, of the mountain and we won't we won't know that and so I, i'm always a little cautious
0: to figure out who in fact knows what they're doing until they do it through at least one or two cycles Well, Jim, your humility is always refreshing. It was great to have you on as our initial guest, and it's obviously wonderful to have you on this week in what was an extraordinary week, in my opinion. And I think a week that we're all going to look back on, I encourage all of our listeners to follow you on the Twitter because I think you're one of the better guys and gals out there on the Twitter. I find it amusing and educational constantly. And I also love the fact that every night at 5 o'clock Eastern time, you absolutely throw things at the television screen when I open my mouth. For Jim Chanos, <laughs> thanks for joining us on the tape. Guys, it was my pleasure anytime.
1: We'll be right back after this short break.
0: Welcome back to On The Tape, folks. You can't see it because there's no video, but I'm telling you right now that Danny Moses is foaming at the mouth. It's not a pretty sight. He ripped off the tape last week, and he wants to rip it off again. Give it to me, Danny. Give it to me.
3: You got it. But before I start, Guy, I want to ask you a question. What's the one overriding thing these three things have in common? Your derby horse pick, the Yankees, and the Fed. loser. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the one,
0: <laughs> what do they have in common nothing two winners and one loser nothing
3: steroids always come back to bite you at the end
0: Oh. that's man. what all that's...
3: three have in common so that all the steroid injections the fed has been making are going to come back to bite me and that's how i want to begin this rant all right so here's what i want to talk about we saw the jobs report last friday all the anti-inflation people are like i told you so 266 shitty number people aren't going back to work I took a deep breath. I didn't respond to anyone on Twitter. I didn't want to make any judgment. I wanted to read through the data because that's what I always tell people to do. That's what I want to do. When you peel back that number of the 266 and you look within it, why was the number so weak? And by the way, there's a chance it get revised up. There's a chance it maybe get revised down. But underneath the surface of that number, the most important thing to me was the amount of job openings are at a record high, 8.1 million. The amount of people that aren't going to work because they want to be paid more is inflationary, right? The average hourly earnings number was up 0.7%, which may not sound like a lot, but we've had no wage growth for years. And we have said on this show time and time again that wage inflation is the most important thing. I want to add one other element. Certainly, we talked about the PPP loans and the fact that this unemployment benefits, the surplus is paying out till September can certainly make people not want to go back to work and say, hey, you have to pay me more. But here's what I think is also happening. Within the services industry, specifically restaurants, if you took a PPP loan, and historically, we all know that people have paid people off the books, when you call those same employees back and say, hey, Joe, come back to work. We're getting busy again. He goes, great. I'm happy to do it, but pay me off the books because I'm collecting unemployment. And if you don't pay me off the books, then I'll have to stop my unemployment. That's what's going on right now, in my opinion, to a certain degree, because these restaurant if you want to call them, have to show that they're paying salaries because they have to use this money accordingly. Other things that were in that number, the only bad number was the print number of 266, if you peel it back. Let me fast forward to the CPI number that came out this week as well. When you look at that number, certainly it was shocking. The 4.2% number was huge. That was a year-over-year number. The two-year number, so 2019 to 21 April, was 2.2. That would probably be the only, quote, dovish thing that I could see in that number. But the number was massive seasonally adjusted that number was up 0.8% in April from March and the CPI was the highest on record since 2008 in any 12-month period. So here I say and I'll end with a rip on this. We said this may happen. Powell is now in a no-win situation. You know, he's he's putting himself out there. He's auditioning for to get renominated. He'll probably end up taking the blame here, but I don't know how the Fed sits still. Fed fund futures have now priced in a 100% chance of a rate hike before December 2022, I believe. And the last thing I'm going to say before I want to hear you guys' comments is J.P. Morgan did an April survey of global purchasing managers of that showed the strongest rise in selling prices on record. So that's talking to the Procter & Gamble's of the world and people out there. So I will end with that. But I will trust a J.P. Morgan survey always over any type of government survey so love to get your guys thoughts. vindication
0: that's the word i think of first of all your thing about the yankees forget about the steroids thing i know you're trying to tweak me or twerk me or piss me over whatever. you're not going <laughs> to succeed okay and yes i picked the winner of the kentucky derby okay but let me say this you know and i know you hate when we bring this up but mike coco beware came on CNBC's Fast Money a couple weeks ago. There it is. Fast Money. Got it in. For a reason. For a reason. And he was saying the bullishness he saw. In other words, he saw bond yields going lower in the very short term. And I said to myself, wow, that's really interesting because we have this jobs number. Sure enough, sure enough, on that Friday, you saw it. Ten-year yields went from 158 down to 147 in a straight freaking line. But you know what happened the rest of the day, Danny? I know you know what happened the rest of the day. Yields went higher and they effectively closed unchanged, actually slightly higher. Huge tell. You play poker, you know, everybody's got a tell. Well, that was a tell for the market, number one. So I stored that away. And then this week I saw the Chipotle Mexican Grill. Politicians can argue all they want about minimum wage. Guess what? The market's going to do the work for them. What do I mean? Well, anecdotally, CMG came out and said, guess what, folks? We're raising our minimum wage to $15 an hour. And why is that? It's not because they're great guys and gals. Maybe they are. I love their burritos. It's because you have to pay people to work. That's how you get people back to work. That's the final piece of this puzzle, wage inflation. And it's coming, Dan Nathan. And don't at me on Twitter quickly, real quick before you come at me. And then you can rant all you want. Oh, and so I sit here and think I must be a real asshole because everything I'm saying, nobody agrees with me except Danny Moses and a couple freaks on Twitter. And then Stan (laughs) Drunkenmiller, Stan Drunkenmiller writes an op-ed that basically reinforces all the shit that I've thought for the last 16 months. So if it's good enough for Stan, Dan,
1: it's good enough for me. So here's the thing, right? So you're talking about this wage inflation, and we're not even talking about commodity inflation, input inflation. And I think that's one of the things that's likely to cause a lot of equity market volatility, because the story was that the other side of this pandemic, we were going to have this rip-roaring economy. Well, all of a sudden, you might have a situation where we know that we're going to have decelerating growth in the back half. We saw Q1 GDP, what, 6.5% or so. There's some estimates right now. I think GDP now is like 11%. So at the end of the day, you have an S&P 500 trading 22 times, you had gross margins for many companies at all time highs here. And all of a sudden now they are voluntarily raising wages because they need people to service your customers at the same time for your burrito guy. Chicken prices are going through the roof. You know, other input costs are going through the roof. And that is really one of the things that I think could really dampen valuations going forward. I and mean, I don't think it's something that's particularly priced in with the S&P 500, just a few percent
3: from its recent all time Absolutely right. Let me just say this again. There's 8.1 million job openings. In a recession, it's people getting fired. They are going to have to pay a lot more and it's happening. And let me just say one other thing with this administration. We are seeing news on unions everywhere. I mean, we talk about it during the election and when they were on the trail. Guess what? It's actually here and happening. So you have a confluence of events that, in my opinion, are, very, are setting up very negative And the Fed is now behind the eight ball. We said this last week. I think the benefit of the doubt now goes to inflation. Prove me wrong. I'm sure we'll have a retail sales number that comes out. People will dissect it. But I would just tell people this. Again, the headline's the headline. Look behind it. Peel it back and take a look. And to Guy's point, the market's pretty efficient. The 10-year the yield did drop below 150 pre-market during that jobs report number, and I'm not saying I was out there shorting the bond market, thinking yields would go necessarily higher. But that knee jerk reaction was wrong. Peel back the onion.
0: Yeah, I love peeling back the onion. I love the blooming onion at what are the, what's that place? Outback named? Steakhouse Outback or something. It's fantastic. It's yeah. outstanding. You get like a cold stellar Artois
3: on tap and a blooming onion, and you're in business. I wanted to make one other comment: is people are looking at S and P levels and Nasdaq levels, and we go into the digital currency again. And I don't know where you know this pretty volatile world, but let's be clear. When money left the market has left the tech market obviously it went into some of these coins that are out there. And I don't know what the aggregate level is going to be today, but we've gone from we peaked out around 2.6 or 2.7 trillion in the total coin market. During the SEC testimony last week, Ginsler said that crypto assets don't have a regulatory framework and it's not the SEC's responsibility. Congress should do something. Well, we all know no one Congress is not going to do anything. So let me just say we don't have a level for coins. I know people watch it. But if that thing drops from $2.7 trillion to $2 trillion, which could easily happen potentially overnight, that's $700 billion that basically being wiped out that I don't think is appreciated enough and what that means to potentially retail investors and their ability to participate in the market.
0: I think it's a great point. I want to be ahead of that point because nobody's talking about it. And you're right. If the bloom comes off the rose, like the blooming onion, the bloom comes off the rose, Dan, in this crypto world. It's going to manifest itself in the equity world without question. Let me bring this up, Dan, because I know you're pissed off at me. I can tell by your face. All the Fed, transitory, everything's transitory. You know what? They're going to be right. It's actually going to be transitory. The same way a gun fired the bullet from the barrel of the gun to its target that space is transitory. But the damage it does to the target is everlasting. And the damage this is going to do by waiting for it to be transitory to the economy and for the 35 million people in this country is going to be devastating.
3: That's what I say to you, Jerome Powell. I want to talk about Stand the Man, Drunken Miller's editorial in the Wall Street Journal for a second. There was a small typo in it, which was they were talking about why is QE still happening, which we all agree with. There's no reason for that. I mean, Look, keeping fed, keeping rates at zero is one thing. $120 billion a month is another. But the $120 billion is broken out of $40 billion in mortgages and $80 billion treasuries. I believe in the editorial they cited $40 billion in mortgages correctly, but then stated $120 billion in treasuries. Either way, it's too much. And the point at the end of the editorial was I agree with the most. When the tide goes out in this market and we sit back and look and the market comes off if this continues to happen, and we take a step back and look at the $30 trillion in debt that we are in as a country, the one comment he made, God forbid rates move higher and you end up spending 30 percent of our gross receipts into just paying the interest off. I don't want to say that's going to happen, but that's when you start to think ahead of things that can really be outside of purview right now. And listen, you like to think ahead. So we've been talking about this for years, right? This goes back
1: to the response to the global financial crisis and people yelling and screaming about the oncoming inflation that really never came until we saw global central banks flood the world with liquidity. And obviously, governments and treasuries do the same in the terms of fiscal All of that was done to combat the worst health and economic crisis the world has seen in 100 years. As Stan said on CNBC the other morning, we were in a black hole. He had no problems with that. And I agree. Why are we still buying these risk assets now? Why are we kind of putting the pedal to the metal? But I guess the other point, what you're talking about, how do you service this $30 trillion in new debt? Well, that's why interest rates can actually never go up meaningfully. You can stop QE. You can keep interest rates low. I think there's a whole couple of other words that people like to conflate of what we're kind of in for, but we have never seen, I actually think that we are going to see prices come in pretty dramatically when we were on the other side of this pandemic, okay? I do believe that this is going to be generally transitory for all intents and purposes. Think about what's happened in the last 12 years, though, since the global financial crisis. We've seen the major tech companies all over the world here in China flexing in the most deflationary sort of way. So to me, I believe it's going to be transitory. I think they will stop QE. I think they will keep a low interest rate mindset because they don't want to service all that debt. MMT is here to stay, baby.
3: Dan, 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 Dan. Why is it so bad? 90% of people don't even participate in the stock market, right? I think we can say that. I don't know what the number is, but the the top 10%- Well, hold on. There was a
1: JP Morgan report last week, I think, that said we are at the highest point in which Americans are investing. It's close to 50% right now. And I'm not telling you that's a bullish sign. What I'm telling you is is that there's tremendous- I think we're saying the same thing in a way. The higher it goes up is actually the more risk if if these policies
3: go pear-shaped. Here's my point. Why is Wall Street always so scared about one, blue-collar, mainstream people making more money and two allowing them to actually earn some rate of return risk-free without really entering the stock market to take the risk? Because the level of sophistication out there is not broad-based across the country. What are we so scared of? Letting people make make more money and enjoy a higher rate of pension returns. This is the problem. This is, I'm not going to talk about income. What is
1: a pension, Danny?
3: What I'm not going to talk about income inequality. Well, well, baby
1: boomers have pensions and local that's about and state,
3: Local and state employees, deal, you know, with state pension funds and, and companies have long-term pensions. What I'm saying is that the rate of return savers that are out there, why is it so bad that they can earn oh my god can you imagine four or five percent being able to earn but you know what inflation is is certainly i think dan you would agree running higher than where the expected inflation is certainly running higher than what current treasury yields are giving you so why not a little bit and wall street freaks out every single time and so you know what it's time to have a little bit of I guess not a quality. Well, what's so- Wall Street?
1: What do you What do you mean, Wall Street? Who freaks out? Who doesn't want people? You said Wall Street doesn't want rich them to people.
3: Rich people don't like high rates. Rich people love the stock market. Rich people don't want to think about blue collar people making more money. It's not that they're against it; they just don't think about it. And you know what? The minute it starts to hurt the margins of the companies that are invested in, they'll blame somebody for it. But you know what? It's rates have been too low for too long. Wages have been too low for too long. And, and I think it's just time that this thing starts to happen. Well, I know,
1: but what, what is going to be the impetus to do that, Danny? Is it going to be another financial crisis? And the only way that I can see another crisis coming would be if rates went up precipitously. You think about what happened in Q4 2018 when the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield got above 3%. The stock market went down
3: 20% in a straight line. Because we are artificially suppressing real rates and where they should be and this is not a real market i'm sorry but it's not it's been great for stimulus for companies maybe to lend but it hasn't done the job that it was supposed to do and now that it's finally doing the job it's supposed to do we're upset about it this was the whole point of stimulating the economy supposed to feed down all the way to everybody right everybody's supposed to end up making more money well guess what Finally, we're going to get wage inflation. Oh, my God, maybe the market sells off. But you know what? Maybe that's healthy. By the
0: way, the only the other thing we didn't mention is the fact that Stan Drunkenmiller mentioned within the next 15 years, in his opinion, there's a chance that the dollar is no longer a reserve currency. I agree. I just think its timeline is wrong. I think it's going to happen a lot sooner than that. And oh, by the way, when the dollar goes lower, guess what that is? It's inflationary, folks, for you playing our home game. Danny, I'm glad you joined us. Glad we got that rip off the tape out because I love exercise, Danny Moses. So thanks for jet setting in. And before we get out of here, Dan, Nathan, we talked about our new presenting sponsor, CME Group. I started my career in 1986 and obviously we did a lot of business with CME Group in a day. And I've gotten to know their CEO, Terry Duffy, quite well. Terry's a friend He's somebody that I can speak to about a number of different things. He comes on Fast Money all the time. I'm certain we'll have him on the tape as a guest, but it's really an honor to have such a – storied franchise endorse us effectively. So thank you, CME Group, our new presenting sponsor.
1: Guy, it is a tremendous honor to have CME Group as our presenting sponsor. You know, when I started out in the business in the late 90s, I worked at a hedge fund. The guy I worked for traded a lot of S&P 500 futures on top of a lot of NASDAQ stocks. So I was Johnny on the spot on the machines trading NASDAQ stocks. And I had a phone on my here all day long, quoting a broker in the S&P 500 pit. To me, it was a really interesting experience. We went down to the floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange to trade those S&Ps one day in 1998. It was probably one of the most memorable days for me in the market. So to have this come full circle and CME Group to be sponsoring On The Tape podcast is truly an honor. So uh, I really look forward to the partnership.
0: Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet.